Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. A new report from 50 of the world's leading experts on the need to combine solutions for combating the climate crisis and our planet's rapidly declining biodiversity. California's historically low water levels may have inadvertently helped solve the case of a missing plane that crashed 56 years ago. And an update on that telescope NASA is now planning to construct on the far side of the moon. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. A new report from 50 of the world's leading biodiversity and climate experts has emphasized that we cannot solve the climate crisis without also solving our rapidly declining biodiversity, and vice versa. The report, which came out of a workshop hosted in collaboration with the United Nations Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, or IPBES, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, includes suggestions on various solutions that could tackle both issues at once. Killing two birds with one stone, you might say if killing birds wasn't the exact opposite of what this report is trying to achieve. Anyways, the workshop was hosted at the end of last year, but the report it spawned has just been published after completing the peer review process, and it focuses on real-world solutions that account for things like the social science of affecting change and strives for plain language to cut through the dense landscape of academic jargon. The concepts revolve around nature-based solutions for offsetting carbon emissions and avoiding monocultures, or single crops that could be susceptible to disease or disaster and, if eradicated, leaves us with nothing in that particular area. Quoting Ars Technica, Biodiversity is a sort of insurance policy against this. A naturally growing forest includes a greater variety of species, and the odds are better that some of them will ride out a one-time catastrophe or endure ongoing stressors like high temperatures and more intense droughts. Resilience is built into the ecosystem because it's been functioning for thousands or even millions of years. Its greater odds of survival also mean that it's got a better chance of holding on to all of its sequestered carbon, keeping it out of the atmosphere and preventing further global warming. End quote. So one tangible suggestion from the report is to transform a heavily logged forest into a protected national park. Quoting again, as the trees grow back, they would sequester carbon in their tissues and provide habitat for the return of animals. Letting a forest come back naturally, rather than planting a single species of tree to offset some corporation's carbon emissions, makes it more resilient. This nature-based solution both sequesters carbon and provides an extra ecological or economic benefit. End quote. 
There are a lot of other steps that can be taken to sequester carbon, like protecting coastal mangrove forests. They are four times better at sequestering carbon per area compared to a rainforest. And places like mangrove forests and wetlands would also benefit from protection because they contain so many different species. And again, the more species, the more resilient an ecosystem will be. I also like the reasoning the report gives for investing in more trees in cities, not just habitats for birds and an improvement to humans' mental health, but trees can literally cool cities down from all the heat that they're absorbing from the sun during the day and then releasing slowly at night. Anything to cool down New York City, I am here for. And climatologist Hans Otto Portner of the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany, who co-chaired the steering committee for the workshop responsible for the report, points out that those sorts of solutions that incorporate more biodiversity into existing human spaces rather than kicking humans out is key. That's part of the social science side of the report. What are things that people might actually be okay with implementing? How can scientists work with locals to respect their knowledge of flora and fauna as well as their culture? What kind of creative solutions can be found that benefit people in ways more tangible than simply preventing the acceleration of our impending doom? Here's an example, quoting ours. Consider agroforestry, in which farmers grow crops within a forest instead of clear-cutting it. In Brazil, for example, some farmers are switching from raising cattle, which requires the obliteration of a forest, to growing cacao, which does just fine in the shade of trees. Researchers have shown that this boosts the biodiversity of the rainforest. It's a triple win. Farmers earn a livelihood, the forest holds onto its carbon, and a range of species is able to thrive. There's a lot of room to improve when it comes to agriculture, the report notes, as the global food system is responsible for between 21 and 37 percent of humanity's total net greenhouse gas emissions, end quote. For all of these creative solutions that hold the climate and biodiversity in tandem, the workshop team still emphasizes, as report co-author Almuth Arnath says, quote, nature is not going to save us, end quote. We need to be thinking in this direction, but it is not the be-all, end-all. We can make some good strides against the climate crisis and recover a bit of biodiversity by heeding the suggestions in this report, but at the end of the day, we need to be taking major strides to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the board. For all the ways that the climate crisis is existentially terrifying and practically overwhelming, every now and then its unfortunate circumstances reveal a tiny sliver of a silver lining. Like the seemingly endless supply of perfectly preserved specimens being unearthed in the thawing permafrost in Siberia. Or last week, when California's drought may have yielded the discovery of a missing plane that crashed into a lake nearly 60 years ago. Quoting Earther, Two workers from an underwater surveying company were doing testing at Folsom Lake last week where water levels have reached their shallowest levels on record. As they were conducting their work, their sonar device picked up a strange piece of debris. When they inspected it further, they found it appeared to be a small aircraft. Seafloor Systems sonar imaging shows the outlines of a plane lying 160 feet below the lake surface in the deepest part of the body of water. Normally, those depths would likely be impossible to scan even with sonar imaging, but the drought's impact on the lake helped them get a clear picture of the plane's tail and propeller. 
end quote. Now, due to the murkiness of the low water, they haven't been able to discern a cabin number or other identifying information just yet, but from what they can see, it looks very similar to the model of plane that crashed into Folsom Lake on New Year's Day in 1965. Four people were killed in that crash, but only the pilot's body had ever been recovered. The family of one of the victims recounted to ABC News how they even used to regularly go out to the lake when the water was low to try to find anything that might bring them closure. While many family members of those lost in the crash have now passed away as well, for the remaining survivors, confirmation of the plane could finally bring a bit of that closure. Seafloor Systems is working with the local sheriff's office to develop a plan to get the plane out of the lake, at which point they'll be able to identify it for certain. Like the discoveries in Siberia and other archaeological discoveries around the world being spurred on by record-breaking weather conditions, Eartha reminds us that while they're worth celebrating, quote, we should also remember that the historic drought conditions are also making it impossible for endangered salmon to swim along their traditional paths, forcing farmers to rip up their crops and threatening to spur more deadly wildfires across California. And the dry season is just getting started. End quote. When NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab announced the latest projects they'd be funding as part of their Innovative Advanced Concepts program in April, one that stood out to me was a plan to build a telescope on the far side of the moon. I shared news of that in passing, but we didn't really know too much about it yet, and now Wired has published an in-depth look at just what this telescope intends to do and how it may be executed. So first, the reason for the telescope is so that we can pick up long-length radio waves that most likely hold a ton of information about the origins of the universe and things in it like stars, black holes, and the Earth itself. No telescope on Earth's surface can read these radio waves due to all of the communication signals happening on the planet from our various tech, as well as the Earth's atmosphere, specifically the ionosphere, which reflects radio waves back so that they never make it to us. But the far side of the moon blocks Earth's radio signals, and therefore we may be able to capture some of the longer waves, which could provide some key insight into the cosmic dark ages, a gap in the universe's history that we've thus far been unable to see. Quoting Wired, After the initial fireball from the Big Bang faded into the cosmic microwave background, or CMB, but before the first stars started burning, there was a period when almost no light was being emitted in the universe. Scientists refer to this period without visible or infrared light as the cosmic dark ages. During this epoch, it seems likely that the universe was very simple, consisting mostly of neutral hydrogen, photons, and dark matter. Evidence about what happened during this period might help us understand how dark matter and dark energy, which by our best guesses make up about 95% of the mass of the universe, yet are largely invisible to us and which we still don't really understand, shaped its formation. There are clues about what happened during the cosmic dark ages whizzing around, hidden in hydrogen, which still makes up the majority of the known matter in the universe. Each time the spin of a hydrogen's atom's electrons flips, it gives off a radio wave at a specific wavelength, 21 centimeters. 
But those wavelengths released during the cosmic dark ages are not actually 21 centimeters long by the time they reach Earth. Because the universe is rapidly expanding, hydrogen wavelengths also expand, or redshift, stretching out when they travel across vast distances. This means each wave's length functions like a timestamp. The longer the wave, the older it is. By the time they reach Earth, they're more like 10 or even 100 meters long, with frequencies below the FM band. End quote. And there's actually a slew of different projects aimed at putting some sort of telescope on the moon to pick up these frequencies. Jack Burns, a cosmologist at the University of Colorado Boulder, is the lead on two of them called Farside and Farview. Both use simple dipole antennas. Farside would use 128 pairs of them connected by a tether and be splayed out across 10 kilometers on the moon and be built by one lonely lunar rover. It would also have a base station to pick up signal data and send it to a satellite orbiting the moon. Farview is kind of cooler because it proposes building a telescope using the moon. Its 100,000 dipole antennas, a thousand times more than Farside's, would be built using aluminum extracted from regolith on the moon's surface. Rovers would extract the aluminum, fashion the thin antennas out of it, and electroplate them onto the ground. Pretty cool. But then there's the other proposal, the Lunar Crater Radio Telescope, a one-kilometer-wide, 600-meters-deep aluminum mesh dish housed inside of a three-kilometer-wide crater. According to Wired, it would be the largest filled-aperture radio telescope dish in the universe. It's something that Burns was convinced back in the 90s couldn't work, but technology has advanced by leaps and bounds, and right now the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter mission is doing work that would find the right location for the Lunar Crater Radio Telescope, or LCRT. And the LCRT is far more complex and would be much more expensive than the other plans, Farside and Farview, but it would also be way more accurate. And like Farside and Farview, the LCRT would be built by rovers, at least in one plan. A backup plan is to fire harpoons into the crater wall from the landing craft, which, yeah, sure, that seems like an equivalent backup. I mean, I'm sure it actually is, and that the science does add up there, it just sounds funny to my layman's ears. Of course, all of these rovers being used for any of the telescope plans present a problem because, as Wired points out, they would have to hibernate to survive the negative 173 degrees Celsius temperatures that occur overnight. And overnight on the moon is equal to two Earth weeks. That is just one of many challenges that they will have to overcome and solve for. Each project, if approved, would cost upwards of a billion dollars. And we won't be seeing them anytime soon. The soonest that Farside could launch would be by the end of this decade, but Farview wouldn't be able to until the 30s, and the LCRT not until the 40s, which is weird to even say out loud. It could be worth it, though, whatever happens. John Mather, a cosmologist, astrophysicist, and Nobel laureate, told Wired, quote, We are absolutely, completely ignorant about the radiation of the universe at long wavelengths that won't go through our atmosphere. There could be big surprises out there. End quote. It's that time of the year. The Katmai National Park and Preserve Fat Bear Cams are back. 
There are five cameras, including one underwater one, along a mile and a half stretch of the Brooks River in the park, all of which you can watch 24-7 at explore.org. As the now internet-famous brown bears emerge from hibernation and start preparing for this coming winter. Over the years, various bears have become particularly beloved, and many people watch along to follow various storylines that emerge. Most of the activity will kick off in July, so that'll be the time to really tune in. Although the annual Fat Bear Week contest, which celebrates how well the bears have prepared for hibernation, won't occur until October. And if you have no clue what I'm talking about, you can listen to a segment I did on the bear cams on the July 1st episode of this show last year. Link in the show notes or just dive in and enjoy. But that's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.